Well, amen, church. Uh, what a delight to be able to praise our God this morning for his great love upon us. I'm delighted to be with you this morning. Let me add my voice uh, to those who are wishing all the moms a happy Mother's Day. Um, and we are just so incredibly thankful for you. You don't have to do anything today, moms, okay? Everything will be taken care of you. Uh, tomorrow, no promises, but today is your day. And uh, I am also equally delighted for a baby Stephen to be born. Stephen McDonald, that is fantastic. That boy is destined for great things I could already imagine. I'm so excited for you, Ryan and Christine. I praise God for life. As we know, children are a blessing from the Lord. I also want to uh, let you know that we sent out uh, this weekend a survey to the church that we would love for you. If you haven't had a chance to uh, fill it out, uh, be helpful for us as we begin to think through the process of reopening and returning to some sense of normalcy here. Well, what we, of course, all kind of hoped when we first started this whole pandemic thing is that uh, we eventually would get the green light and we'd all run back here and give each other your hugs and handshakes and high fives. And I'm afraid uh, our, our re-entry back into church life is going to be uh, necessarily more uh, measured more deliberate, uh, more uh, safety conscious, and, and slow. And so the survey, if you're able to fill that out, be helpful for us to kind of get a pulse of where everybody is. And, and even uh, many of you have already uh, taken an opportunity to have done that, listed a, a number of uh, comments for us, which are very, very helpful. Thank you for that. And already we could kind of gather uh, that there is a diversity of opinion in regard to this coronavirus amongst the church. And so uh, one of my heart's desire is that as we move forward, as the elders make decisions, that we would be all filled with charity towards one another and that we would um, follow our own conscience as God leads us and not stand in judgment when other people make decisions contrary to our own, but that we would have a a spirit of love and unity in the church. This is uh, my first pandemic. And, uh, and to be honest, it's, it's uh, our governor's first pandemic. It is our president's first pandemic. And so I so appreciated uh, Cody's prayer already for us this morning. So meaningful to me um, that, that we need to be in prayer for our political leaders and uh, as it pertains to our church, in prayer for our church leaders, our elders, as we attempt to navigate uh, what it looks like moving forward. So I trust you'll uh, be full of prayer for us, and we're so thankful for that. I am delighted this morning to uh, turn to the book of Esther with you. So if you find your way there, Esther chapter 2 this morning, we got a lot to cover. And so I'm, I'm uh, delighted to be able to do so this morning. Esther chapter 2, verse 19. Hear now the word of God. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them, He was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. 
In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to the king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they must put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring and from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to, all the, uh, to the officials of all the people, to every province in his own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. The city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We believe it to be a gift to us. And so now as we sit under it, we pray that you would speak to us through it. We believe you are the high king of heaven, Lord of heaven and earth. And we are yours. We belong to you by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been purchased by his death. And now we come as your people scattered abroad in our homes, humbly desiring to hear from our God that we might see your glory, that you might be exalted in our eyes and our hearts and our minds, that we might more faithfully find our delight in you and obey all you have put before us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the year 1937 when German pastor Niemöller uh, boldly preached these words during the days of the Third Reich. Quote, We have no more thought of using our own powers to escape the authorities than the apostles of old. No, no more are we ready to keep silent at man's request when God commands us to speak. For it is and must remain the case that we must obey God rather than man. Within days after preaching that sermon, he was arrested by the German authorities. He would spend the next seven months in solitary confinement before his trial on February 7th, 1938. The crime in which he was accused of by the German authorities was, quote, abuse of pulpit. Speaking against the Reich with malicious and provocative criticism. So the day of his trial came and he was escorted by a uniformed officer from his cell to the courtroom through a very long and somewhat dark tunnel. And, 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 and like that tunnel was dark, so his soul became filled with dread and in particular loneliness, he would testify. He, he knew, of course, the outcome of the trial. It was predetermined. But what confused Pastor Niemöller was why he stood alone. Why no one was there to stand with him. Where, where was his family? Where were his friends? Where was his church when he needed them the most? And so his heart filled with despair walking through that dark and long tunnel. He noticed that the soldier who had not said a word up to this point began to speak. But was doing so so quietly he couldn't make out what he was saying. 
And yet he could tell that he was saying, the soldier was, saying the same thing over and over and over. And finally, Pastor Niemöller was able to pick out what he was saying. He finally realized the soldier was declaring these words. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Proverbs 18 and verse 10. Pastor Niemöller would say, at once my fear was gone. And it was replaced with a sense of hope and a sense of courage. Of course, Niemöller is not the only uh, member of God's people to walk through a dark tunnel in order, in order to discover that the name of the Lord is a strong tower, that the righteous, if they run into it, they will be safe. The, the people of God have often had this experience, haven't they? And they continue to do so even in this day, around this world. And they did so in 5th century B.C. in a land called Persia. And they discovered what many people have discovered who trust God throughout the millennia, what many are discovering even this day, when everyone seems unjust, God continues to be righteous. When no one comes from help, God continues to be faithful. When God seems distant, he continues to rule in both power and love. When the world hates us, God remains at our side. The world does, of course, have a hatred towards God's people. And that hatred towards their people is simply an extension of their hatred towards God. If you think that's too extreme, consider the words of Jesus in John 15 when he says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world, for I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, what? They will persecute you also. Did they hate Jesus? They did. And so they continued to hate his people. And therefore, as God's people, we should expect enmity between us and the world. One author put it this way. God's revelation of himself is rejected far more than is accepted. It is dismissed by far more people than embraced by it. And it has either been attacked or ignored by every major culture or civilization in which it has given its witness. Magnificent Egypt, fierce Assyria, beautiful Babylon, artistic Greece, political Rome, enlightened France, Nazi Germany, Renaissance Italy, Marxist Russia, Maoist China, and pursuit of happiness America. The community of God's people has survived in all these cultures and all these civilizations, but always as a minority. And to this list, I think we could add perverse Persia. As we consider this conflict, this conflict that's beginning from Genesis 3 to this very day, and we'll conclude only when Christ returns, a conflict between the world and the people of God, as the world uh, has a hatred towards God and his people. And not just simply the conflict, but how it is that God delivers us from it. And we shall learn all this from the book of Esther. I, I think despite how Esther is often portrayed, Esther is in many ways a very dark book. Uh, we, we, we have abuse and greed and pride and perversion in some of the most repulsive forms. We have human trafficking, sexual exploitation, genocidal hatred. And yet, even in the midst of all of that, what we declare and see over and over again is that God reigns even though he does so silently. And so we resume our story here in chapter 2 and verse 19, remembering last time that Esther, the Jewish orphan girl, has now become the queen of Persia. And yet it is a hostile world in which she reigns as we consider scene number one, unrewarded righteousness. Note verse 19 of chapter two. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time. Now that's an interesting phrase, I think. Uh, We've gone five years, Esther's been queen for five years now. And evidently there is a second gathering of virgins. Evidently uh, King Xerxes liked the first time so much, he decided to do it again a second time. And so as this was happening, there's our, our, our date for us. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now Mordecai, uh, we learn, has an uh, official role at the king's gate. And, and by the way, the king's gate is, a, is not, not simply like the entrance into the palace. 
Mordecai's not there uh, checking license plates on the chariots as they roll on in. It was actually a very large building. It was about 12,000 square feet, the King's Gate, was built by Darius, Xerxes' father. We have excavated it now. And we know that this is where legal and commercial business was often uh, transacted there at the King's Eight. And so what we learn is that, that Mordecai was a, a civil servant in the uh, Empire of Persia, just like many of you are civil servants to this federal government. So Mordecai was to, uh, to Persia. Maybe he got a, a Christmas card from the king. Who, who knows? But uh, he worked for the government. And so he's out there in the king's gate while Esther, of course, is in the palace, but she's being pretty quiet about it, isn't she? As we read in verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. And so once again, uh, we, we saw this last week, and now it's reinforced for us. No one knows she's a Jew. She, no one knows that she is a believer in God. She keeps that to herself. Mordecai said, don't let anybody know. We worship the God of the Bible. Don't check that box on Facebook. Don't, don't post that on Instagram. We don't want people to know. Now, I asked my kids last night as we were looking at this passage, is that a problem? And they all agreed. I hope you do too. Yeah, that's a problem. Um, we, we, we are not to keep our faith hidden. Um, we, we're not to, to, to keep it a surprise that we follow Christ. Now, it doesn't mean we need to, every conversation, we need to lead with our faith. I mean, if you're in the drive through through Starbucks and they ask you, do you want whipped cream on your mocha mocha? And, and, and you say, well, before I answer that, I want you to know that I love Jesus and I like to read Jesus' book and I pray to Jesus and, and I sing to Jesus. And, and would you like to know Jesus too? Um, listen, people have work to do, and there's a line behind you, okay? I, I think we ought to be uh, winsome when we express our faith. We ought, we ought to be uh, intentional and deliberate and considerate when we talk about our faith. But we must talk about our faith. We, we must share who we are. Uh, you might say, my faith is private, okay? Well, that, that, that may be the case, but let me just tell you, that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is that we are to make uh, disciples of Christ. We are to share the goodness and the grace of God with others. This is what we are to do. I mean, for instance, let's say you were married and none of your co-workers knew about it for five years and one day they find out you're married and they say, you're married? Well, we, we had no idea. So you never talk about your wife. That would be weird, right? Yeah. And so it is that we keep our faith to ourselves. That is strange and unbiblical. And Esther here is hiding out of uh, some degree of fear, or at least Mordecai is commanding her to. Uh, and so she keeps that silent to herself. Well, meanwhile, back at the king's gate there, we see there's a bit of political intrigue going on, don't we? As we read in verse 21, in those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So here we have an assassination plot. These are, we're told, they're guards at the threshold. In other words, they are guarding just outside the Oval Office. I mean, they have access to the king. They could literally pull this off, and they want to kill this man. We don't know why, but we are, of course, told that they're eunuchs. And so that might give us a hint as to why they bear ill uh, tidings towards this king. Uh, we know, of course, this king had a huge harem, uh, and most of these women were neglected. Most of them, he probably didn't even know their names. And so these vulnerable and very lonely women in prison in the palace were cared for by eunuchs. We know, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, that King Xerxes had a uh, tendency to take about 500 boys every year from his captive nations and castrate them and force them to serve in the empire as eunuchs. And so this is just one more brutal act we can add to the list from King Ahasuerus. We'll also know you might find it interesting, in the year 465, about 15 years after these events, uh, King Xerxes was actually assassinated, uh, guess by who? A eunuch uh, ended his life. 
Well, here's an assassination plot. This is big news, of course. This, this is beyond the headlines, the world's most powerful man. And there are people who are trying to kill them and uh, kill him. And evidently, they can't keep their anger to themselves because Mordecai overhears, as you see verse, in verse 22, and this knowledge came to Mordecai. So Mordecai hears about this assassination plot. The question is, what, what does he do? And what would you do? Can I, uh, we took a poll in our family last night. How many would tell the king? How many would keep it to ourselves? I mean, this king is a terrible man. You might just look the other way. You might say, go get him, boys, right? You, you might keep that to yourself. And yet, notice what Mordecai does as you read on in verse 22. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. So you might wonder, why would he do such a good act for a terrible man. We're not sure. It's not told. Perhaps he was aware of what Jeremiah told the exiles, that they were to seek the welfare of the city. Of course, we as Christians know from what Paul wrote to the Galatian church, that as we have the opportunity, let us work for the good of all. All. And so as we interact with our neighbors and fellow drivers on the road and co-workers and eventually, hopefully, waitresses and waiters, their good should be our ambition. Now, you might say, well, what about evil people? Well, again, Paul would write to the Romans, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If the enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. And we might add, if there's an assassination plot against him, tell him. This is what we're called to do as God's people. This is what the gospel does in us. It transforms us into people who have a desire to bless those who hate us. That we actually want to treat others as Christ has treated us. We are the community of people who follow the one who gave up his life for his enemies. And so we too are called to love our enemies even when they Hate us, And so Mordecai does a good thing for a bad man. As a result, the plot was foiled, as you see in verse 23. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on gallows. There's an investigation. There's some congressional hearing. They've interviewed the witnesses. They gathered the evidence. It is found to be true. And so they are executed. Now, my translation says they were hanged on gallows, but there's a little footnote. I bet yours has one, too. This alternative translation might be they were suspended on a stake. When we think about hanging on gallows, we think, you know, the old Western movies with the platform and the trap door and the noose around their neck. This is a difficult phrase to translate, and it might be that somehow they were suspended on a pole. We do know from history that the Persians invented crucifixion and the Romans perfected it. And so this might be a a reference to crucifixion, that uh, these men were actually crucified as a capital punishment. This, This is a public act, regardless of how they were killed or executed, to know that, hey, listen, don't mess with this king. Well, what about Mordecai's reward? Well, it's recorded there at the end of verse 23. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. He got a note written down in the congressional record. Right? And you think, well, is that it? No parade, no promotion, no pay raise, no, no public recognition of any kind? No. And this, in particular, if we know the history of the Persian Empire... This was especially odd because the Persians were actually famous for rewarding those who served uh, the empire. They would keep a list of uh, what were called the king's benefactors. And in order to uh, encourage loyalty to the empire, they reward those who give service to it. And yet Mordecai did, and there is no reward given to him. And yet we will only find after the fact it was according to God's plan. You can't see it in the middle. Uh, You you wonder if Mordecai is is somewhat disappointed or annoyed that he got snubbed. I mean, uh, where's the recognition? Where's the promotion? I don't know. You ever get passed over by promotion? I mean, how how does that go? You come home and say, honey, uh, she says, how was your day? Or he says, how was your day? He says, great. You know, I'm realizing I've I've made the company a lot of money and all my numbers look great. And uh, Lenny, two doors down, he got the promotion. Right? And are you filled with joy at that? Uh, It was a hard day. 
And Mordecai is passed over promotion. What do you do? What should Mordecai do? Well, I wonder if some degree we should trust that God is ruling even in those type of situations. Even when it doesn't make any sense, we're in the middle of it. At the very least, what we do know is that God is taking note of all the righteous acts we do. Even a cup of cold water given in his name, God writes down. And one day you shall be rewarded for it. For the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 22, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I tell you, my brothers and sisters, all will be made right In Jesus' timing. In the meantime, we trust him. Even when we get passed over for recognition. In fact, to make matters worse, read chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, not Mordecai. And maybe this is relating to some of you. You say, King Xerxes is kind of like my boss. You save his life and some other guy gets promoted. It's biblical, okay? So here we go. Um, And so we see now, moving on, of course, uh, as we're introduced to Haman, into scene number two. Scene number two, unmoving pride. Unmoving pride. And Haman is, of course, introduced there in verse one. Haman, as you will learn, is perhaps one of the least attractive characters in all of Scripture. He's a bad, bad guy. He's kind of Hitler 1.0. And in fact, he's so bad that the Jews to this very day have a tradition. During their Feast of Purim, they read the book of Esther. And whenever Haman's name is mentioned, everybody boos and hisses. And so feel free to do that uh, when I mention the name Haman, right? Yeah, okay, fantastic, very good. Um, all right, no, no one's listening at home. Yeah, be as loud as you like. Uh, it won't distract me in the slightest bit. So just boo and hiss Haman. And, uh, and so he, he gets promoted, and it, quite a promotion. Look in verse 1. The, uh, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. I mean, he becomes, in effect, prime minister of all of Persia. He even gets a throne, which is pretty cool. And beyond that, everyone must bow to him, as we see in verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. Why? For the king had so commanded concerning him. And so everybody's bowing to Haman, except good old Mordecai. In fact, we see that in there as well in verse 2. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And so every time Haman strutted through the gate, everybody just kind of lies down and puts their head to the ground and bows down, all except Mordecai. He's just standing. I wonder if he's on tiptoe. Right? And he's giving Haman the stink eye and, and saying, listen, I'm not bowing down to you, buddy. Not a chance. Of course, everybody at work wants to know, why, why aren't you bowing down? In fact, this is a serious offense. Look in verse 3. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's law? You're breaking the law by not bowing. What's going on? And they keep talking to him, as you see in verse 4. And when they spoke to him day after day, right, they keep going to him. And he would not listen to them. You should bow, you should bow, you should bow. He's not going to bow. And so why wouldn't Mordecai bow? Well, I've probably came across two dozen different guesses as to why he won't bow. The most popular were Jews didn't bow to people, which is simply not true. In fact, they will to King Xerxes. Some say he just enjoys irritating Haman which I, I could kind of resonate with. Uh, number, no, a third is that he was angry he didn't get promoted instead of Haman, maybe, perhaps. Um, I wonder if there's a clue if we finish verse 4. And we read, um, so they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. What, what words did Mordecai have? For he had told them that he was a Jew. Now, that's surprising because it's Mordecai's idea to keep their Jewish identity a secret. No, we're not telling people we're Jews. And all of a sudden, he's explaining he's a Jew. Now, if Mordecai's a Jew, what's Haman? Well, did you see there in verse 1? He's an Agagite, 
which just kind of sounds like a bad guy, doesn't it? I mean, Agagite. I mean, you can't be a good guy with that, uh, with that kind of lineage. So he's, a, he's an Agagite, and Mordecai's a Jew. And so you, I mean, when we read the Bible and we read, okay, Haman the Agagite, we kind of just feel like that's filler. It's like saying he's from Idaho. It's like, okay, I don't really care, moving on. But it's actually not just filler. It's actually very uh, important to the story. At least I, I find it interesting. So what's an Agagite? And so I'm gonna, we're actually going to go to three other passages and uh, if this bears no interest to you, this would be a good time to uh, reheat your coffee or whatever you need to do. We're going to do this for about five minutes. So I'd like you to turn over to Exodus chapter 17, if you will. Exodus 17, of course, is the story of Israel being uh, redeemed out of Egypt. And in chapter 17, they have not even made it to the foot of Sinai yet. They just, uh, just got out through the Red Sea. And uh, while they're journeying, guess what happens? They're attacked by a people called the Amalekites, as you see in Exodus 17, verse 8. Then um, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And for time's sake, this is that famous story where Moses has to raise his hands in order to defeat them. If he drops his hands, the, the Amalekites begin to win. If he raises his hands, the Israelites begin to win. And so uh, Aaron and her help him. We read in verse 10, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. So the uh, uh, Israelites have the victory, but look at God's conclusion in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. Okay, so write this so important, I want you to write it down and recite it in the ears of Joshua. He needs to know this, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God says, judgment's coming on these people. And you read the end of verse 16, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So God's saying there's going to be continual conflict between the Amalekites and the Jews, and eventually God says, I'm going to blot them out. Second passage, turn over to Deuteronomy 25. We're now 40 years later, and uh, God is preparing the people to enter the promised land. This is a new generation, and he's reminding them of the law and all the, the regulation. This is how you're going to live, and this is what you're going to do, and so forth. But we get to verse 17 of Deuteronomy 25, and note what God says. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way uh, as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut you off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven uh, you shall not forget. God clearly hasn't forgotten. And so he says, okay, we're going into the land and we're going to take care of the people in the land. But once we settle down in the land, once we take care of our enemies in the land, what are we to do? We're to turn and, and execute God's judgment on the Amalekites. Okay, that took evidently 500 years to happen, but God does not forget. So turn lastly to 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's at this point that Israel has settled down in the promised land, as you know, and they have a king who is their first king, is of course King Saul, as you are aware. And we read in 1 Samuel 15, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Right? Has God forgotten? He hasn't, has he? Now go and strike Amalek and devote, uh, devote to destruction all they have. He says, now it's time to execute my judgment on these people. And so, as you know, this is a very famous story. Saul does go out to battle, but does not do what God has commanded and bring the full judgment of God upon these people. So you read in verse 8. Now this is where we get to Esther. Ready? But Saul and the people spared Agag. Agag. Who's Agag? Well, he's the king of the Malachites. Well, who's Haman? Haman is an Agagite. He is a descendant of King Agag, the Amalekites. Now, who's Mordecai? Okay, well, we know he's a Jew, but turn back to chapter five, chapter two, excuse me, in Esther two, verse five. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish. 
Who's Kish? Well, Kish is the father of Saul. So Mordecai, get this, is a descendant of King Saul. Haman is a descendant of King Agag, right? And so Mordecai's forefather, if he would have done what he was supposed to do, then Agag would have no descendants. There would be no Haman, and we wouldn't even be in this mess. And yet Saul disobeyed, and disobedience has consequences, maybe generations, 500 years in this case, down the line. And so we read in chapter 3 and verse 10 that uh, uh, Haman, the Agagite, quote, the enemy of the Jews. He is of the line of Agag, of the people of the uh, Amalek, and he still hates the Jewish people. There is a perennial hostility between these two people, and we see it here once and again. And I think this in part explains Haman's uh, action, as we'll see. I think it explains Mordecai's too. Right? It seems to me Mordecai is saying, I will not bow to that man. The son of King Saul will not bow to the son of King Agag. And I would just suggest, uh, I, I call that pride, to be perfectly honest. I, I, I think bowing is simply a sign of respect. Right? In the military, you salute the senior officer. What if you don't like him? You still salute him. What if he's a jerk? You still salute him. Right? You respect the chain of command. And I think Mordecai has compromised pretty well already his convictions. He shouldn't be in Persia to begin with. He should be back in Jerusalem as Isaiah has told the exiles. And yet there he is. He's serving in the empire. We've seen his compromise. But evidently bowing to Haman for him is a bridge too far. He is not going to do it. And I think it is a testimony of unmoving pride in his heart. I will not bow. I will tell you, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are to honor everyone, love our brothers, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Even if the emperor is bad as he was in the days when Peter wrote those words. I wonder, is there anyone you're withholding honor from? I wonder if someone is due honor that you are keeping it from them. It might be a, a spouse. It might be a, a leader, a boss. It might be a parent. We should humbly obey our Lord, shouldn't we? As we turn now to scene number three, unreasonable hatred. Unreasonable hatred. Well, it's not long before Mordecai hears about, or excuse me, Haman hears about Mordecai's response, as you see in verse five. And when Haman saw Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Now think about how life's going for Haman so far. It seems pretty good, doesn't it? He's prime minister. He's wealthy. He has a throne People bow to him, which would be kind of cool. Things are good, aren't they? But there's one guy. I mean, it's just one guy who will not bow. And, he, I mean, he, it's, Mordecai is a rock in his shoe. He cannot get on with life without taking care of it. He's obsessed with it. Life is great, except for this one thing. How many of us are like that? If this one thing, it just uh, blocks out all the blessings we're experiencing. And so Haman is filled with fury, and uh, so he's going to act about it, but... Um, in an interesting way, isn't it, as you read in verse 6, but he does disdain to lay hands on Mordecai alone. That is, I hate that guy, but instead of working it out, I'm going to get other people involved. Right? Instead of actually going to Mordecai and say, hey, what's going on, buddy? I'm your boss. You need to do this. Let's figure this out. Uh, he's going to blow this way out of proportion as you read on in verse 6. So, uh, so as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, in other words, Haman, you need to know Mordecai's a Jew. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So not only does he want to kill Mordecai, which seems a bit of an overreaction, he says, no, no, that's not good enough. I'm going to kill all of his people, which uh, uh, most scholars think is about 15 million people at this point. Now, does that, that seem like an overreaction to you? That's a little too much? I mean, in fact, is it not interesting? Basically, we have the prime minister of Iran who wants to kill all the Jews. Um, and as we've already learned in the book of Esther, we'll continue to do so. The dates change. The human hearts don't. And so I'm, I'm just going to wipe them all out. I mean, it, it's extraordinary and it's evil. I mean, could you imagine if I said something offensive to you today? And I, I know that's probably not hard for you to imagine. I'm sure it happens every week. But let's just say this time I really overstepped things. I, I really went way, way too far. It's terribly offensive. And, and, and what do you think, you know, I, I'm so angry, I want to kill all the Californians. 
Okay, I'm just going to lay wait. And I know Californians probably aren't all high on your list of favorite people. But you say, I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm so mad at Stephen. We need to take them all out. You wouldn't do that, would you? Now, why would you not do that? Because you're not insane. Okay? You're not mad. I think Haman is, is, is a madman. But it's more than insanity. It's satanic. This is not simply a feud between the Amalekites and the Israelites. This is a battle between Genesis 3, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. It is a battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. This is a satanic reaction. And whether it's Agag or Pharaoh, whether it's Herod or Haman, they're all pawns in the devil's hand. In fact, what is it that Jesus said to the Pharisees on that day? If Abraham was, if, if Abraham was your father, you would obey God as Abraham did. But you have another father who is the devil. Remember that? Which is why you seek to kill me. Right? And so the, the, the names are changing. It's the same plan. Satan hands it to Haman at this time. Hate God. Kill his people. And that conflict continues to this day. Just consider in 50 nations around this world, it is illegal to convert to Christianity. It is illegal to share your faith. And, and it, the, the battle continues this very day. And the battle, I believe, is coming even to our own land. Now, not to fully excuse ourselves, but what do you do when you're dishonored? I certainly don't want to kill people, um, but maybe in your heart, in particular, let me speak to some of you dads who are really into respect, and someone doesn't respect you, maybe someone in your house, and you blow your top. Right? Did Jesus not warn us that when we hate in our heart, we're committing murder in our heart? And so perhaps we're more like this man than we care to admit. As we now turn to scene number four, an unbelievable indifference. So we have the, the, the plan. Now we have to put in the action. Step one, find the best date for the massacre. So they roll the dice, as you see in verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. They cast pur. Pur is simply a, a six-sided dice, much like the dice that we have, Later on in this book, you'll hear about the Feast of Purim, uh, which comes from uh, the word pur, it's just plural for dice. They would cast it in a bowl, not for luck, but to consult the will of the spirits, or the will of the gods. So Haman's not an atheist. He's looking for some spiritual guidance to plan the destruction of God's covenant people. And so he rolls the dice. It lands on the 12th month, and he evidently de uh, determines the 12th month is the, the favor time for the genocide against these people. Of course, we know something that Haman doesn't, do we? According to Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. I think we see that true here. I think we already see evidence of God's grace, God, God working. Because Haman is scheming, if you read it carefully in verse 7, in the first month, the dice tell him to attack in the 12th month. And as, as one, one pastor put it, every child knows there is a long time between January and December. And I think God is, is working even in setting this day to allow the Jewish people to prepare. But now that the date is set, we need, Haman needs to convince the king to annihilate an entire people group within his kingdom. Now that sounds like that would be a hard thing to do, doesn't it? But sadly, uh, we find it's not. For we read in verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws. So that it is not in the king's profit to tolerate them. What's stunning to me about those, that accusation is how vague he is. He doesn't even name the people. He doesn't even like lay out their crime. All he says is they're different from us. They, they will not assimilate into Persian culture. They, they look different. They dress different. They, 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 speak, they don't even speak our language, King. We shouldn't tolerate these people in our land. And it's hard all, not, not to hear the similar words that were said in the 1930s in Germany, isn't it? Uh, you wonder if they, they learned it from Haman here in Esther chapter 3. And so, well, Haman might have been vague about their crimes, but he wasn't about the profit the king would enjoy if he agreed to his plan. So you read in verse 9, 
If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasure. 10,000 talents of silver is about 400 tons of silver. It is an extraordinary amount of money. We think about half the annual revenue of the entire Persian empire. And you think, where in the world is Haman going to get that kind of money? And I think the answer is obvious. He'll get it from the Jews. He'll take, we'll plunder their stuff, right? We'll take it from them. This should sound familiar. We'll, we'll even uh, take the fillings out of their teeth and melt them down. So what we're going to do, king, is we're going to get rid of a problem in our kingdom and become incredibly wealthy at the same time. This is a wonderful business opportunity. It's a wonderful political move. And I'm simply looking out after you, King Xerxes. Just say the word. And so we're not surprised by what we already know about King Xerxes, how he responds there in verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And what I find, there's so many things to find stunning, we don't have time to consider it all. But I am just shocked by the indifference of this king. He's like, whatever, do what you want. Kill 15 million people, whatever. I don't have time to really get into the weeds of that. He doesn't ask who these people are. He doesn't say, hey, okay, well, can you elaborate what crime they've done? This will make me money? Okay, let's do it. Now, does he need money, by the way? Right, he just threw a six-month-long party. He sits on gold couches. He's got, he just threw a 12-month spa for hundreds of women. Right? Uh, he, he's got two palaces. Right? He doesn't need any money, of course. But the Bible is right, isn't it? When it says, whoever loves money never has enough. What's equally jarring, I think, is this plan to eliminate an entire ethnicity of people. And just, just in case we think this is a, a foreign problem, um, we might consider how our forefathers treated the native population in this land in which we now live. And just in case we think this is an ancient problem, we might consider Darfur, or Rwanda, or Bosnia, or Cambodia, or Syria, and certainly 1930s in Germany. This continues to happen. In fact, what we cannot do when we read the book of Esther, and in fact any narrative portion of the Old Testament, is is to become, see these sinful people and become filled with self-righteousness and begin to pray, thank you God that I'm not like Xerxes. I think Jesus warned us of such things. Instead, what we should say is, I could be like this man if it were not for your grace upon me. And the fact that I've seen his sin, you are simply showing to me the evil from what you have have saved me from becoming. In fact, I would suggest, if I might, that we are often like King Xerxes, that we are often indifferent to the plights of people around us, so that we often make terrible decisions out of greed, not seeking the glory of our God or the good of others, but our own material gain. I think we are uh, at times put our toe in that pond if we're not swimming in it. We are not loving towards others as we ought. We believe things about people that we do not know um, and, and that are told to us. And let me just for a moment just be clear that hating other ethnicities, whether Jews or not, that bigotry towards any type of people that are different from us, as I've shared with you before, is not only evil, it's heretical. Right? Every person in every nation, regardless of what religion they practice, is made in the image of God and therefore is valuable to God. And so the people who do not worship Jesus as the Son of God have nevertheless great value in Jesus' eyes because they are made like Jesus. And so racism, therefore, is not only wicked, it's heresy. It denies the very core Christian doctrine that all of humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. Well, sadly, they don't care about these matters, do they? A decision has been made, and notice, uh, notice was sent throughout the entire kingdom, as you see in verse 12. When the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps, And to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the people, to every province in his own script and every people in his own language, it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. 
So an edict is announced. They translate it into every language so the Jews have no place to hide. The Jewish people will be exterminated. And their intention is clear in the chilling words of verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to, here it is, to destroy, in case that's not clear, to kill, in case that's not clear, to annihilate. Who? All Jews. What about the young? Yeah, Young. What about the old? And the old. What about women? Women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. We're going to kill, we're going to destroy, kill, and annihilate every single one of them, 15 million people, young and old, little girls with pigtails, little boys swimming in the river, uh, grandmas who who can't get up and run away, grandpas who are, are so deaf they can't hear the soldiers barge in through the door. Everyone's going to die. And so the people of Persia are told to get ready for that day, as you see in verse 14, a copy of the document was issued, was to be issued as a decree in every province. We're going to put this up in every post office, right? By proclamation to all the peoples, here it is, to be ready for that day. Get ready. 11 months, get ready to kill your neighbors and to take their stuff. And so it's no wonder we read verse 15. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. It seems to me not everyone wants to kill the Jews. Uh, there's great confusion in the capital, but, but what are they going to do about it? The, the empire has decided, and it seems like nothing that they can do will prevent such a tragedy. Meanwhile, right, we got Xerxes the Xerxes and Haman the horrible. What are they doing? Well, they, they sit down to have a drink. I'm going to pour you something to drink. I mean, boy, we've made a lot of money today. In fact, let's toast to genocide and wealth. And so we have the world's opposition. The people of God in the hands of the wicked and in the hands of the mighty. But note, not in the hands of the Almighty. Well, they are, of course, in the hands of the Almighty, but not in the way that the hands of these fellows. In fact, it's interesting to me, if you look back up in verse 11, what was it that Xerxes said to Haman? The people are yours to do what seems good to you. Well, not quite. The people are actually gods. And the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And the righteous run to it and is saved. And so Susa may be in confusion, but I'll tell you on this day, heaven was not. In fact, as I read through this entire passage, I see hope after hope after hope. I don't know if you can see the gospel shining through these words. It is interesting. Let me try to lay it out for you as we consider, lastly, an undefeated hope. It is interesting to me that we have in this story, and see if you could draw the parallels, an accuser coming before the king. And what was the accuser say? What did Haman say to the king? They don't keep the king's laws. I wonder if the same could be said for you. Certainly can for me. Do you keep the king's laws? Not the the king of this land or any other, but the high king of heaven. Are you keeping his laws? I think, as we've already seen, like Xerxes, we are often greedy and indifferent. Like Haman, we are are often angry and self-focused. Like Mordecai, we are often proud and will not bow. Not even to God himself. That we will not submit. And in pride, we refuse to honor the high king of heaven. I think this is true in our case, is it not? As it is in the case of everyone who's walked upon God's world. As Haman said, he actually uttered truth in many ways. If you apply it to God, it does not profit God to tolerate me. Or perhaps even you. Does our enemy not come before our king in heaven and does he not as we have seen in scripture elsewhere lay out all the reasons we should not be allowed to live in God's good land for we are in our very core rebels and so what has been done well it's clear hasn't it an edict has been declared that the cost of our rebellion 
is for us to experience the wrath of God on a certain day. It is appointed for us to die. The edict has been signed against us. It has been sealed by the Lord, and it will not be repealed. As we know, Scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. And so just like the Jews in 5th century Persia, so now even this day a decree of death hangs over us all for which we can not deliver ourselves. So the question then before us is, is not only what is the hope for the Jews in this day, but for what is our hope before a holy and righteous God for whom we have uh, 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 rejected his right reign in our life and not given him the honor that is due him. Of course, the only hope is if he acts. There's nothing we can do. And of course, he did act. And he took Jesus, did he not? And he, he handed Jesus to whom? To our enemy. He gave him and he said to the enemy about Jesus, do what seems good to you. Destroy him, kill him, annihilate him. And of course, he did. There on Calvary's cross, in our place. In fact, we threw our own hat in that ring, as we sometimes sing. Oh, were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Yes, I was, because it was my sin that put him there. If you, w- if, if, if you will, we have plotted his assassination. That we were the ones who would turn against him and put him on the cross. Even when he came to save us, we would turn against him. And yet in his great grace and love and mercy to us, he allows it to happen. They're praying from the cross, Father, forgive them. Prayer for you and for me, those who have rebelled against God, forgive them. See, as, as he forgives us, even though we've killed the king, we, we are won by that great love, that he would willingly die in our place, that he would really take that edict of death upon himself so that we would not have to endure it. So what then is our response, Christian? I think once again we see it here. Our response is to spread news of the king's grace throughout the world, in every province, in every language. Not just send an edict of death, but rather an offer of mercy that they would humbly bow to King Jesus and receive his grace. So I wonder, if you perhaps are listening to the sermon and don't identify yourself as a follower of Christ, what hope do you have before a holy God? Will you not bow to Jesus and submit your life to him? The Bible tells us that if we... um, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. May not yield to him and receive his mercy and escape his wrath. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, in light of these truths, will you not renew your commitment to Christ to be like him even as we live in a world that doesn't really appreciate us much? In fact, as Jesus says, hates us. And I believe as the days go on, we'll continue to do so even more. What then do we do? Well, we treat them as Christ has treated us. We treat them with love. And we too offer them grace in Christ. May we do so faithfully as God has done with us. Our Father, we are thankful for your word this morning. In particular, we are thankful for the reminder of the plight we were once in, the danger we once faced, the edict which once was above our heads. And yet, by your grace, you have sent your son into the world to take our place. The edict was not withdrawn. Christ just endured it for us. That he was handed over to the accuser for him to do as seems good to him. And so we thank you for such unbelievable love. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for others. And so we are loved by you. May we share that love, even when the world is hostile towards us, as we are in awe of the grace which we have received from you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
We invite you to join us in singing the doxology. Thank you. 